Well done. Uh, the outline, of course, of the sermon is in your bulletin. Uh, if you find that helpful, uh, please hold on to that, and may it uh, keep you on track as we work through uh, this passage of Scripture together. Uh, let me continue uh, in a heartfelt attitude of prayer as we look at this passage together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please indeed do speak to us through this passage this morning. Help us to see how it points to Jesus and all that you've done for us through him, we ask. Amen. Uh, do you ever find yourself asking the question, what hope is there? Uh, Englishmen ask it every four years uh, when the Soccer World Cup comes around. Uh, unfortunately for them, their case for hope has little cause. It's been over half a century since England last won the World Cup, and with the passing of every new tournament, the hope seems to recede, not get closer. Uh, count yourself fortunate that you're not English if you're a soccer fan. Uh, we can ask ourselves the question, what hope is there in many different life settings? Uh, by Genesis chapter 4, the dust is just settling after the greatest trauma to ever afflict the human race. It's what we call the fall. And in Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at last week, sin has just entered the world, and it's had a devastating effect on the world. The perfect creation setting is no more. And big questions now loom at this point in the Bible. What hope is there now for humanity? How will the entry of sin into the world affect the world thereafter? What is this glimmer of hope of this seed of Eve promised in Genesis chapter 3 who will crush the serpent's head? What is that all about? And so now Genesis sets up the rest of the Bible to trace the family line of the seed of Eve which will ultimately crush the serpent's head. And that's what we see throughout biblical history. While wickedness proliferates, God preserves a godly line, and it's through this line that he will bring salvation. Uh, this is why Genesis, the book of Genesis, is very interested in genealogies. And Sarah did a great job of reading through a very long list of them. And now, before we get into the detail, uh, let me say a few words on the structure of Genesis, the book of Genesis. Now, if you were to read through the whole book in one sitting, uh, you would notice there is a repeated refrain. Uh, the refrain is this, this is the account of. Uh, a literal translation would say, uh, these are the generations of. And this provides the structure of the book. Uh, Genesis is actually divided into 11 sections. And after the introductory chapter, each new section thereafter starts with this marker. This is the account of. And what it does is it's tracing the family line uh, using a mixture of genealogy and narrative, the actual story of what happened. Uh, the first of these sections starts in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, let's look at it again. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that section then proceeds to trace the godless line of Cain. His family line 
is characterized by degeneration despite civilization. And we're going to start halfway through this section today. Now the next section starts in chapter 5, verse 1, which was in the very middle of our reading today. Chapter 5, verse 1 again. This is the written account of Adam's line. And this now charts the godly line of Seth. And this family line is characterized by hope despite death. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at each of these family lines in turn. So firstly, the line of Cain, the family line characterized by degeneration despite civilization. Uh, Chapter 4 opens with Adam and Eve getting in the family way. Uh, They experience the parental joy of new life. Uh, They're blessed with two sons, uh, Cain and Abel. Now the sons are different in profession. Uh, One's a farmer and the other is a shepherd. But the sons are also different in heart. Uh, A crisis occurs when they present their offerings to God. Uh, Abel's offering is accepted, but Cain's offering is rejected. Uh, It's not that animal sacrifices were more acceptable than grain offerings. When we look at elsewhere in the the Old Testament, we see that it honors both. Rather, the issue is it's the quality of what they bring and the heart with which they bring it. Abel brings his best. Cain brings the rest. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 again. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the fat portions from some of his firstborn of his flock. Now, a bit of background. Uh, In all animal sacrifices, the fat was regarded as the choicest part of the animal. So Abel brought the best of his flocks, but Cain didn't bring the best of his crops. Abel came with a faithful heart of reverence and worship, but Cain came with a faithless heart of indifference and presumption. And when we fast forward to the New Testament we see that indeed the New Testament confirms this heart's diagnosis. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. In Cain's response, and the events that follow the darkness in his heart becomes more evident. Now, he could have humbly asked God for forgiveness, but what does he do? He becomes angry and he becomes resentful. And God graciously warns him of how precarious his situation is. Chapter 4, verse 7. God says to Cain, If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The question is this, who will master who? Sin wants to overpower you, but you must overpower it. 
sin is actually personified here. It's like a, a picture as a dangerous, predatory animal crouching about to pounce. It's actually quite a graphic picture of the struggle Christians have with sin. And it's a picture to remember when we are faced with temptation. Sin is like a dangerous, predatory animal desiring to pounce on us and to overpower us. And the question is, will we resist it and overcome it, or will we buckle and allow it to overcome us? Uh, the New Testament letter of James chapter 1 resonates beautifully with Genesis chapter 4. James 1 verse 14 says this, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So back to Cain. Uh, tragically, Cain does not master sin, but sin masters him. Cain hardens his heart, and Cain willfully pursues the dark path of murder. And when God confronts him concerning his brother's absence, he responds with lies and with cool indifference. Chapter 4, verse 9. I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? But God cannot be deceived, and God pronounces judgment. And for the first time in the Bible, God places a curse on a human being. Just as Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence, so now Cain is also banished from the Lord's presence. And he's consigned to a Bedouin lifestyle east of Eden. Uh, with the judgment pronounced, Cain utters a cry of anguish. But it's not the cry of remorse for the harm he's inflicted. Rather, it's the cry of fear and self-pity at the consequences he's incurred. And it's driven by pure, or should I say impure, self-interest. Now then, um, Adam and Eve, they would have had other sons and daughters. Remember, they had very long lifespans at this point in human history. And so they would have had other sons and daughters. And now, you see, Cain fears that when word gets out, he will be the victim of vigilantes who are seeking to avenge Abel's death. And yet, what does God do? God is very gracious. God protects him with a mark. Uh, we're not told what the mark was, but in some way, people would know that they would be answerable to God if they killed Cain. Chapter 4, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And so, uh, Cain moves away, and then he himself gets in the family way. Now, uh, herein uh, is one of the favorite questions of every scripture student who wants to test his teacher. Where did Cain get his wife from? Maybe you've got that question yourself. Uh, I presume the answer it would have been that uh, he married one of his sisters. Uh, in those exceptional primeval times, it was permissible. Uh, in these times, it's not. So if you're thinking of it, don't do it. 
Now, the remainder of chapter 4 briefly traces the line of Cain through the subsequent generations. It traces it down through the sons and daughters, ultimately to the sons and daughters of Lamech. And what the rest of chapter 4 does is it also provides a window into the nature of Cainite civilization. And what we're going to see is this. On the one hand, there were admirable aspects of the culture. Civilization grew. But also, there was a dark underbelly. Now, uh, as image bearers of the creator God, mankind has been given this mandate to rule and to develop the creation. That's what the kids' talk was picking up on. Uh, Whilst God's image in humanity has been defaced by sin, it's not been obliterated. And the godless Cainite civilization now births this massive cultural advance that enriches all of life. Uh, Cain's line exercised their creative God-given abilities in various ways. Uh, Firstly, uh, they pioneered urbanization. We're told that Cain builds a city and he names it after his son Enoch. Uh, They developed animal husbandry and agriculture. Look again at chapter 4, verse 20. Uh, Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Uh, We also see the music and the arts were established. Chapter 4, verse 21. Uh, His brother was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. We also see there was the growth of industry and technology. Chapter chapter 4, verse 22. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Do you see what's happening? Uh, Civilization, it is developing, and culture is growing. Uh, A brief reflection for you on the relationship of Christianity with the arts and science, uh, with uh, the relationship of Christianity towards culture and civilization and its growth. Uh, Some religions are very negative about uh, civilization, about developments, about modernization. Uh, Some religions view technology and education as evil. Uh, Some religions reject the use of modern medicine. Uh, Some religions spurn the arts and entertainment, uh, seeing them as being spiritually destructive. Uh, And if we're honest and we look back in Christian history, sometimes Christians have also slipped into adopting such a negative viewpoint. But the reality is very different. Christianity is not opposed to the developments of culture and civilization. Christianity is not opposed to the arts, to industry. Christianity is not negative about technology and about science, about medicine, about manufacturing, about education. Quite the opposite, because these are all part of God's God-given mandate to humanity. We are image bearers. We, in some way, rule the creation and develop it. What Christians should oppose is the abuse of civilization and the development of culture. Uh, There are two particular dangers to which fallen humanity is prone. Firstly, we elevate these good things to a position of primary importance. 
Uh, these good things are embraced as providing the meaning to life or the answer to life's problems. We don't need God, we say. We can fix our society through better education. We say science and technology have all the answers we need. God is now irrelevant. And the second danger is where these good things are put to a destructive use. Science is used to develop weapons. The arts promote lifestyles or worldviews opposed to God and his good way. And medicine offers abortion on demand. The Bible affirms the development of civilization and culture and the arts and the sciences. They're all God-given gifts which are given to enrich life. But they should be used to the glory of God and they should be received when they're used well with thanksgiving. So, that was a brief reflection on uh, culture and civilization. Let's go back now to the Canaanite culture, which is in the process of growing in Genesis chapter 4. Because what we see in chapter 4 is not only is civilization growing, but there's also a growing sense of degeneration. And it's exemplified in this unsavory individual, Lamech. What we're going to see is this. Lamech's life choices and character, they provide a window into the degeneration of that civilization. Uh, firstly, uh, Lamech debases marriage. Uh, in the Bible, this is the first recorded instance of polygamy. Uh, he defies God's stated will of monogamous marriage, a lifelong covenantal commitment between one man and one woman. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 again, which we saw in previous weeks. God says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and they will become one flesh. And not only does Lamech debase marriage, he also devalues life. Lamech glories in violence. His badge of honor, if you like, is disproportionate vengeance. He boasts of his violent, vengeful spirits to his wives. At chapter 4, verse 23. Listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Uh, God's vengeance upon anyone killing Cain was sevenfold. Remember in the Bible, uh, seven is the perfect number. Uh, God's vengeance is in perfect me measure appropriate to the crime. But what of Lamech? He threatens to take vengeance 77-fold a disproportionate avalanche of violence and vengeance. And so, you see what we're seeing. This is the line of Cain. It's the godless line. The line of the godless man, and it's dark, and it's degenerate. That's the line of Cain. Remember at this point, the line of Abel, the godly man, has been obliterated. He has been killed. And the question then is, what hope is there? And it's at this point that we move on to a new line. Because the hope is restored with the birth of another son to Adam and Eve. 
It is the son Seth. And the line of Seth stands in stark contrast to the line of Cain. If Cain's line could be summarized as degeneration despite civilization, Seth's line could be called hope despite death. Uh, whereas Cain's firstborn and successors pioneered cities and civilized arts, Seth's firstborn and successors pioneered worship. Chapter 4, verse 26. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, the word rendered here as call on includes this idea of proclaiming the nature of the Lord. The line of Seth, these people, they have hearts that love God and that sing his praises. The line of Cain was cursed by God, and yet the line of Seth is introduced with a restatement of God's original blessing. Genesis 5 verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. Uh, Cain's line is summarized briefly and with no age data. And yet Seth's line includes details of lifespans and ages. Uh, if you like, it's the ancient equivalent of Ancestry.com. All the data is there. And as far as the Bible is concerned, this is the family line to follow. This is the family line to watch. This is the favored line, the chosen line through which God will bring hope and restoration. And as we look more closely at this family line, two truths become apparent. Uh, firstly, it still suffers the ongoing signs of the fall. Uh, the genealogy, which starts in chapter 5, lists ten names. And I'm sure that you picked up on the repeated refrain. And then he died. Death is still present in the creation. And this family line is afflicted, like any other family line, by death. And yet, within this family line, there is a new sign of hope. Because there is one exception in that line. There is one who breaks the pattern. Did you notice as Sarah read through that long genealogy? Chapter 5, verse 23. Although Enoch, altogether Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. Enoch didn't suffer death. It seems that God spared him death. Uh, God translated him, if you like, into glory, into his presence. The only other instance we have of that in the Old Testament would be the prophet Elijah, who was also taken up to God. We're told that Enoch walked with God. Enoch has this closest communion with God. It's as if he walks through every day of his life hand in hand with his creator, enjoying this close, rich fellowship with God. And God, in some way, as a response to that close walk, 
spares him death. He's taken up to this eternal life with God. Uh, We need to ask the question, what is the significance of this? We are not left to conjecturize because the New Testament picks up on this and looks back on this incident and tells us what we should take from it. Because the New Testament looks back to Enoch as the one who is in a long line of people who are commended for living by faith. Hebrews again, chapter 11, verse 5. Uh, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And the letter of Hebrews does not also leave us in the dark as to what conclusion and application we should draw from that. The very following chapter, chapter 12, applies it in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and that is all the people in the Old Testament who lived by faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You see what it's saying? It's calling us, each of us, to put our faith in Jesus and then to live a life of faith in Him every day. To stay close to Him as we walk every day. To continue to trust Him as our sin-bearing Savior and then to live His way. To resist the sin that crouches at our door, throwing it off to continue on in the Christian life to the very end of our days, never wavering, to run it as if it were a race with our eyes set on Jesus at the finishing line. And if we do so, the Lord of life will ultimately grant us life after death, eternal life. Uh, By the time chapter 6 of Genesis opens, Uh, things have gone from bad to worse uh, worse in human society generally. Uh, Human society, by this point, is in moral freefall. There is, if you like, an acceleration of the degeneration. I'm I'm sure that when uh, Sarah read those verses in chapter 6, many questions were raised in your minds as to what on earth they meant. And uh, if you have questions, so has... um, people from every era of uh, the Christian church. Indeed, these uh, verses in chapter 6 of Genesis are probably some of the most debated uh, in Genesis as to what they actually mean. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, again, just to remind you. Uh, When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Uh, So, I'm not going to sidestep it, Uh, I hope not to confuse you, but I hope to offer you just a a few reflections which may give us a bit of a framework for understanding what on earth is going on here. But you can talk further about it uh, over coffee. Uh, 
What I'm going to present to you is also the view held by uh, Old Testament Jews. When we look at the uh, Jewish literature, extra-biblical Jewish literature, what we call the Apocrypha, uh, this is the view held of uh, those writings, but also the early Christian church fathers. Uh, what we're going to do is, um, just to try and shed a bit of light on this, is look at other areas of Scripture where may, which may help us understand what's going on here. Uh, the case I'm going to put to you is this. Uh, what this is speaking about is very dark. It's actually speaking about, if you like, the demonization of society, uh, of evil running amok, uh, of a growing present darkness. Uh, there's three things which uh, I'll offer to you which you can uh, take away uh, as we reflect on other areas of Scripture which may help us understand what's going on here. Uh, firstly, uh, it talks of the sons of God. Uh, who are these sons of God? When we look elsewhere in the Bible, and you need to notice that it's with a small s, uh, elsewhere in the Bible, sons of God with a small s is, referred, is a way of referring to the angels. So Job, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, is an example. It says this, uh, One day the angels, and if you look in the footnote of the NRV, it says, brackets, son of God, uh, which is what the Hebrew means, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So, uh, first thing to note is, sons of God with a small s probably means angels. Uh, the second thing to note is that in this context, sons of God with a small s probably means fallen angels, uh, spirits of angels, in other words, demons. Uh, so we've looked at, we're looking at one confusing text, why not throw in uh, one other? Uh, because there's an equally debated passage in 1 Peter uh, which talks of Christ preaching to the disobedient spirits from the time of Noah. Uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 18. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So whatever this text means, it seems to point to the sons of God as being spirits, fallen spirits, uh, fallen angels, in other words, demons. Uh, the third piece of biblical data I'd bring to bear on this, uh, to try and draw it together, is that demons have an interest in inhabiting uh, bodies, in being embodied. And that is what we're seeing happening in this passage in Genesis. Uh, what they're actually doing is demons are overstepping the boundaries which God has made and they're inhabiting human beings. Uh, where do I get that from? Uh, think of Jesus who is confronted with the man who is possessed by many de demons. Uh, Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, remember, the demons, uh, they are legion. There's many of them in, within this poor man. And yet Jesus is going to command them to leave him. And what do the demons do? They beg Jesus, don't send us into the, the abyss. Don't send us in a disembodied state. Anything is worse than that. We desire to remain embodied. And so they say to Jesus, please send us into the herd of pigs. And that is what Jesus does. He says, go. And they leave the man and they take up residence in the herd of pigs. So, do you see where we're going? Uh, drawing it all together, what is happening in Genesis 6, I would suggest to you 
is that evil is overstepping the boundaries. There may well have been rampant occult practice. Uh, people are engaging in occult practice and maybe uh, the sons of God with a small s, fallen angels, demon spirits are inhabiting, possessing people on a widespread basis and they are marrying other human beings, daughters of men. And as a result, there is this widespread corruption of society, widespread uh, spread of the occult uh, and demonization. If you're looking confused, then don't worry because plenty of other people have been. But I couldn't just leave the text without commenting on it. Uh, there's plenty of stuff there to discuss. It's not a big, serious issue, but nevertheless, I didn't feel I could leave it without commenting on it. Take, uh, do with it what you will. So, finally, and drawing things together. What do we see? Uh, there is, I would say to you, this acceleration of degeneration. And in response to it, God decrees judgment. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. So, what hope is left? And what has happened to the line of Seth? The darkness is growing, the darkness is gathering, and it's deepening, and it seems almost like it is going to overcome the light. And yet, as is the repeatedly the case throughout history, Though the majority may turn from God in rebellion and wickedness, God always preserves for his purpose a small godly remnant. And by this point in the Bible's history, the remnant is down to one family in the line of Seth. Chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let us conclude by remembering that Genesis was written by Moses in the time when the people of Israel were in the desert. Genesis was written, therefore, for the Israelites in the desert as they prepare to go into the promised land that God had promised them. And so we always need to ask the question, what would this have said to them in that context? And now, what does it say to us as well? Because indeed, the message to them in the desert is the same as the message it carries for Christians today, for those who are trusting in Jesus. Because if we're trusting in Jesus, just like those Israelites who were descendants of the line of Seth, we are in the godly line. And the call is therefore, live out the godly line. Live like Enoch, the man of faith. Live by faith in Jesus the one who crushes Satan's head through his death on the cross. Live by faith in Jesus, the one who fans this flickering fame of hope in Enoch's uh, life into full-blown resurrection life. Also, it says, live life ruling over the creation. As the Israelites enter the promised land, 
they need to remember God had given this mandate to them to develop the civilization and to culture. And so therefore God is saying, when you enter the land, develop culture, develop the arts, develop technology, develop industry, develop medicine, develop education. It's part of your creation mandate. But never make the mistake of elevating these things to a place of primary importance. Continue every day to walk by faith, hand in hand with your God. For sin crouches at your door. And you must master it and not be overcome by it. And that is the, the thrust of what Genesis chapter 4 to chapter 6 says to those Israelites of the desert and to Christians today. Continue on the journey of faith in our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day walking hand in hand with Him and enjoying that close communion and fellowship which comes only through trusting in Him and His death on the cross. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we've looked at a passage of Scripture today which uh, has a huge amount of content in it and indeed some areas of it are complex uh, and we have sought to understand them more clearly this morning. Uh, as we've traced these two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, uh, we pray that the truths that they bring to our attention would not be lost on us, that it is of priceless value and eternal value for us to be a part of the line of Seth, ultimately to be a part of the line of Jesus. Thank you that we can join that line of Jesus through putting our faith in him and his death on the cross for us. And we pray that when we've done that, we will indeed resist sin that crouches at the door of our lives every day and that we would walk every day Enjoying that close communion that comes through faith in Jesus, we pray that every day we would run the race, never wavering from our faith in Christ to the very end of our days. Amen.